Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 1st, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. International Relations Professor Emeritus John O'Dell returns to the show to talk about the breakthroughs for which the local chapters of Citizens Climate Lobby are responsible and some behind-the-scenes discussions and uh, some of the movement, folks. There is movement afoot in some of our legislative and other arenas. Then in the second portion, I'll uh, be rerunning a, a delight, which was doing a talk with Professor Jane Lewis with her holiday note writing suggestions in order for each and every one of us to make the most of that end of year ritual. Be right back after a rather short one. Thanks for staying with us. Returning to the show from last week's program is my first guest, John O'Dell, USC Professor Emeritus of International Relations and Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, headquartered in Canada. Currently, he's heading a project for the Center to develop new ideas to improve climate governance at the global level and at home. He is an active member of Citizens Climate Lobby, working for U.S. legislation to collect a fee on coal, oil, and gas, and send the money to all American families. And he'll unpackage that a bit, too, as we cover what what we can do to feel more hopeful about this monumental task before us. John O'Dell completed his Bachelor's of Arts at the University of Texas, Austin, and his Master's and Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Dell will be heading for the UN Talks, I believe it's this Friday, uh, the UN Talks on Climate Change in Paris. Before he heads out, we'll ask Dr. O'Dell today to focus on the American legislative arena in his capacity as an affiliate of the Citizens Climate Lobby. Since we've talked with other members of the the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, more inroads have been made, and John O'Dell comes back to us today from Pasadena to talk about that. Welcome back to the show, John O'Dell. Hi, Claudia. Thank you. So, scientists say it's possible achieving significantly lowered or no emissions. It's but it's the politics that's the critical and difficult piece in the process. We continue with last week's discussion focusing a good deal on the movement now taking place in congressional corridors and beyond, even though uh, we're, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that there's a vote now on the floor uh, that the Republican legislative leadership is putting in there to, uh, to vote down the uh, presidential directive on addressing climate change. But Citizens Climate Lobbies is just one of the non-state sub-national initiatives and efforts which we'll continue to cover on this program. So let's start with the general what makes you wax more positively about um your about the prospects for movement in republican congressional leadership and uh, you can start with either your M- mccarthy staff uh, meetings or wherever you want to begin john odell well i'm excited about uh, working on this issue because I discovered the policy proposal that came from Citizens Climate Lobby, and I was so uh, impressed with it that I decided to join the organization. 
and I, uh, I am optimistic in the long run because this proposal is designed to address complaints about earlier ideas from both the right and the left. And it seems to me that it's in a political sweet spot where it's an idea that can be supported by conservatives and progressives at the same time, if you can believe it. Maybe one of the last ideas out there that could, could do so. Uh, and I have met with uh, congressional offices, both Democratic and Republican, as a member of the Citizens Climate Lobby, and uh, I could report on what's been going on there. But I do see signs in U.S. politics in the last year, outside and even inside Congress, that, that the American public is moving toward demanding more serious fight against climate change. Uh, and I can get into those details, too, if you like. We can't, well, I, I just read in the New York Times this morning a reporting about this climate change that talks that 63% of Americans are behind a binding agreement, which is, that's really an evolved step in terms of, of perception of this whole climate change issue. So uh, it's, that that movement is, uh, that that's really quite considerable. So, um and and they're leading. <laughs> the American uh, public support is leading, and now they could get the the more uh, institutional support behind them. So what? I, we don't get to go where you've been. It's most of these. Uh, the movement happens when you are in a very small setting. You're finding out, and we've had other citizens climate lobby members talk about some of those meetings, but you've had some more recently, and you have some more recent gauges of what has been happening, uh, making inroads with what the legislative members, they're reaching them with their sensibilities about where this policy has something in it for them. That's right. Uh, well, as a review, we are a nonpartisan organization with almost no money, mostly volunteers, and we just try to talk to other members of the public and to every member of Congress at home and in Washington, uh, including writing letters to the editors and op-eds. And when we're uh, in congressional offices, we, like like professional lobbyists, we try to uh, do two things, uh, to deliver information that might be useful to the staffer or the member, and to build relationships, which takes time. The Indeed. information might be things like what's in our proposal and how it differs from other bills that they know about and <clears throat> what it would probably do. And so last year we had a, a consultant report that projected what would happen if it were passed, and, and they were interested and in, asked for copies of that. We go back uh, to the offices, including the district offices, uh, during the year to try to keep those relationships up. And I did hear in June uh, a staffer uh, uh, House member, House staffer, who works on this issue, tell us that Citizens Climate Lobby definitely is known okay. on Capitol Hill okay. and has made a difference with its nonpartisan constructive approach. And when I was there in June, uh, along with 800 others of us, I was in delegations that went to two Republican offices and two Democratic offices. And we, we make all these meetings off the record to try to help help them be frank with us. But I can tell you that, uh, yes. in general, first place, we rarely hear any hostility. 
Uh, after all, we are constituents coming to town on our own dime, and ultimately they do work for us. So they try to meet with us and listen politely. Also, this year we did not raise the climate science at all, and hardly any of them raised it either, as far as I know. Because you didn't need to, or why? It's, or Because we didn't want to get into a fight okay. uh, with those who didn't agree with it. We came there to talk about a solution, something that's positive for the country as a whole, both economically as well as in the climate and in health terms. Uh, some Republicans have, uh, have welcomed the copies of the study showing what our proposal would do, would do. Uh, and we've also had a number of briefings for staff last fall, last spring, again this fall, just to uh, get the word out about this report. And at those briefings, a number of Republican staff have showed up indicating interest in looking at an idea that's designed to appeal to their political values. Also, in both Republican offices that I attended, after we explained what we were asking, which was for the member to support our co-sponsor our bill, each of the staffers uh, gave us a series of political reasons why it would be hard for his boss to do that right now. And uh, neither of them can said, you, but we know that the that? subtext is that, for example, Eric Cantor, the former top uh, number two Republican in the House, yes. was defeated in his primary in 2014 back in his district by someone farther to his right. And the underlying worry in Republican offices, in many of them, is that they will get primaried, as they say, if they step out on, on an issue like this, because some of them have been. And I can understand that from their point of view. Even so, at the end of that conversation, the one I'm referring to, the staffer told us something like, we yes. do know we have to do something about this, meaning climate change. In another one of my meetings, also on the House side, we were told that there actually are fewer deniers in our caucus than you might think from the media. I think he was not criticizing the media's coverage, but he meant, I think, that most members are just not speaking publicly on the issue, but he knows what they think. The end of the story for our June effort lobbying was that we did not get any Republican co-sponsors to go public to support our bill in June, but there have been two very important signs of movement since June. And just as a review for someone who hadn't listened before, our proposal has three simple elements. It's called the Carbon Fee and Dividend Plan. Element one is that the Treasury would collect a fee from producers of coal, oil, and gas at the mine or the wellhead, and this fee would start low, but it would rise every year, and eventually these producers would be passing on the costs in higher prices in, in these fuels and things made with them. Second, though, the Treasury would take the money and send it all to us, to every American adult, in an equal monthly dividend. And what that means concretely is that in the 10th year, for example, a family of two adults and two kids would be getting a check of just under $300 a month from this wow. carbon fee. And in the 20th year, something around $400 a month. So it's serious money, and they would be spending this money. 
so the dividend would act like a stimulus in every congressional district in the country, and the net result would be expanding the total number of jobs in the U.S. economy, not reducing them, not, not an economic cost. Most people who are worried about taking action on climate change probably are worried about adding cost to the U.S. economy. But if you do it this way, it actually expands the economy. There's really no good economic argument against this plan for the country as a whole. After June, uh, and I don't want to give a lecture here, but you did ask me for yes. signs, uh, signs of, of the movement. movement. Right. Uh, in September, oh yes, Congressman Chris Gibson of New York and 11 Republican colleagues, all Republicans, introduced a formal resolution into the U.S. House. Uh, it says... It's the Gibson uh, Resolution. I'm sorry? It's the Gibson Resolution to That's put right. the label we on. call it the Gibson Resolution. It has a long list of whereas clauses which say that we know that climate change is a serious threat to all of us, and it says the House should uh, engage in a serious study to find a way for us to respond to it that does not harm the U.S. economy. Now, this is 11 House members out of 240 or so. It did not include the leaders of the House, but... This is a very important sign of movement. It took some courage, as I said, for them to step out on this issue in public. One of them is Carlos Curbelo of Florida, Republican of Florida, but he sees the sea level rising and the flooding increasing in his his district, and he says he doesn't think this is a democratic issue. This is something for all of us. Then, at the end of October, another important sign of movement Four sitting Republican senators, Republican senators, announced publicly the formation of what they call an energy and environment working group. And the purpose of this one, again, is to work on climate change and other energy and environment issues for a solution that we could all live with. The original four members, all Republicans, are Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Uh, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Ron Kirk of Illinois. Now, announcing uh, a working group is a cautious step in itself, but it was in public. This is the sign of movement, and these are not the only four. Uh, In the past, you know, John McCain actually led uh, introducing and fighting for a cap-and-trade bill in in the 2000s. Susan Collins of Maine has introduced some excellent legislation. Rob Portman of Ohio, Republicans, all of these, have taken public leads on related issues. So right there you have seven Republican senators. And remember, we don't have to have 100% of the members of Congress to pass a bill, right? It takes 60 in senators and 218 in the House. And we already know that a number of Democrats are in favor. So you're beginning to see the outlines of what could be a bipartisan coalition. 
for those of you who've just joined us, who, who want to know, we're all this rich inside, and uh, and also these are lots of these are very public uh, bits of now information. My guest is John Odell. He's emeritus professor of international relations at USC, and as well a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, headquartered in Canada, here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. He's also a member and a, a rather an active affiliate of the Citizen climate lobby. We're talking about the movement within the congressional membership. We're not, we're not going to quite say leadership uh, with the Gibson resolution and the U.S. Senate and Energy Environmental Work Group. Now, I noticed when I checked out Chris Gibson's uh, website, uh, first looking up the, the Gibson resolution is also known as House uh, HRES, it's not HR, HRES 424, for anybody who wants to follow it up with their own Republican congressional member. But when I looked up uh, Chris Gibson's webpage, you can't see any sign of this resolution on there, which I thought that was a bit telling. I'm not sure if he's sort of leading outside of his district, if that's what you see as um, maybe some sort of a a, a measure that is common. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that. And so, And I noticed the language is very, very general. It's a Merrill-centric. It's not a kind of a sweeping international kind of piece. And I thought that the wording of that certainly is uh, driven likely by the fact that uh, only a, a third of the of Republicans, again, reported in the New York Times this morning, a third of Republicans believe that the climate change would never have an impact on, on our environment. So I, the, the wording is very sort of gradual, I won't say diffident, but it's um, very, very, very tentative there. Um, but it's, but as you say, it's symbolic and it's important. But why would, why don't you think he wants to put that on his own website, though? Well, back in September, he did. Uh, and it was uh, something that was played up on his website. And I don't know what happened since. I haven't looked at his website since then. But I haven't seen any evidence that any of these people are running away from No, it. no, I don't mean that. But I, I thought if he were taking this big step and sort of as a means of sort of helping people move with him, educating people and all that, I would look, I've, I look very carefully all over there. And and so in the not all of the 12 members of this delegation are in coastal influenced uh, districts. They're, they're inland, they're in Pennsylvania, they're in New York, the, several in South Florida, as you mentioned. So it's they're they're coming from not necessarily a geographic based um, kind of constituency, although everybody's affected in terms of where, where the climate can change and became come more more catastrophic and affect everybody um, certainly uh, more immediately. And and so um, Bob uh, Chris Gibson serves on the Conservation Forestry Subcommittee, so that gives him a platform to, to move out there. Um, so how, uh, so you, what do you expect will happen, uh, and I don't know, uh, today with the, I'm throwing this, this is, a, this is a different talking point that we talked a little bit about, but with the vote today that Mitch McConnell is putting on the floor, maybe as we speak right now, um, to roll back what President Obama is trying to do with measures that he is, as a um, as executive officer, can uh, extend uh, with rules and regulations of the Environmental Protection Agency. Yes, well, on the on the resolution, 
as far as I know, yes, it is uh, a very mild uh, statement, and it's not focused on the on international obligations of the United States, but that's, this is what I would have expected. I consider uh, it has to be mild because already the leadership is not convinced by this, and you're not going to get them to sign on to something more dramatic. And I also think that appeals to American national interest are the things that are most likely to resonate with most right. members of Congress. Uh, both McConnell and uh, Majority Leader uh, McCarthy are promoting legislation to try to over- overturn or stop President Obama's clean power plan. Uh, this is what everybody knows. But th- they also know that this is not going to pass Congress. It may not pass the Senate, and even if it did, it would certainly be vetoed by the president, and they don't right. have enough votes to override a veto. So why so are they doing it? Well, they ran on this platform. They're trying to deliver on their campaign promises uh, and lay down a marker, I suppose, for future elections. But it <clears throat> it's not going to pass, and I think everybody in the international talks knows that it's not going to pass. Uh, although it, of course, is important as to who gets elected the next president, uh, as to how things go after that. In, indeed, and I, I'm going to just give people the number that you can call your uh, the Capitol switchboards two zero two area code two two four thirty one twenty one two zero two 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 four three one two one, and uh, to to weigh in with um, your. Uh, one, you're having your representative perhaps join in on the resolution. Twelve sponsors are, are a start, and uh, nudging some of the others uh, is um, helps create more momentum, of course. Um, and so um, when you're talking with these staff members and perhaps their, their bosses, the actual elected officials, when you've laid out, John O'Dell, the the plan with the mine and wellhead tax and the dividend, it's almost like a bond, um, the dividend back to these households. What happens in that conversation? Well, some of them have said, uh, of course, the, the, the main point uh, for conservatives and Republicans is that this is different from cap and trade. It's simple. It's a market-oriented way to promote a transition to a low-carbon economy. Once the fee goes in place, there are no new regulations under this proposal. There is not another dollar that Congress gets to spend. That's what they're opposed to. Instead, the Treasury returns all that money to us. Instead, the companies compete, and technologies compete with each other, and the ones that win are the ones that dominate. So this fits with their general approach to government and their opposition to big government. So they acknowledge that. They say, yes, one of them said, yes, this is an elegant plan, it, 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 recognizing uh, that it is designed uh, for their purposes. That's one of the things they say. And then, <clears throat> as I said, they give us the, uh, the political reasons why it's difficult to do anything about that right now. Yeah, it another is, reason I'm, yes. I'm optimistic and I, is that I see lots of movement in the country outside Congress, uh, including among people that members of Congress listen to, that suggests we're going to see more of this. Uh, There's just a groundswell going on, as you mentioned in public opinion. 
Other surveys have shown that uh, two-thirds of the public say they think they want Washington to do more to fight climate change. Two-thirds of them say they are in favor of a measure like this one, a revenue-neutral carbon tax or fee. And two-thirds of them even say they would be more likely to vote for a candidate for federal office who advocated strong fight against climate change. Two-thirds of the public say they'd be more likely to vote for a candidate. And among the Republican voters, it's interesting, in this survey, by a two-to-one margin, Republican voters also said they would be more likely to vote for a candidate that wants to fight climate change. Really? What's so the, which poll is that? Candidates who are running for office now are looking for issues that the public will support. They ought to look at surveys like this. But it's not just the public. Think about business. Right. 81 familiar big major U.S. corporations this year have come out and made pledges to support a strong agreement in Paris and to take steps in their own businesses that would help uh, reduce emissions or increase funding for green investments. These are companies like Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, uh, big industries like uh, Alcoa Aluminum, General Motors, General Mills, uh, Siemens, Pacific Gas and Electric, consumer companies like Kellogg's and Levi Strauss and Coca-Cola and Target and Walmart. You know, Walmart, a very conservative family and company, they're putting solar panels on the roofs of their buildings. They've got a lot of buildings. Uh, They see an alternative to uh, high-carbon energy. So when the companies are showing that it's not costly, in fact, it makes business sense, to move in this direction, eventually we think members of Congress are going to come along and follow along behind them. Yes, it, um, I'm thinking many things here. That uh, it's the breaking down the plan that CCL is presenting to to Republican delegation members. That it's a, it's so difficult to get that. Uh, it, it takes so it's a, a, it's you've got to slow down a, a presidential debate to interject and get that question in there and talk that through, um, and then uh, I I wanted to um, bring up a, a lovely resource that you brought up from Yale that analyzed how we get to reducing emissions from Don Mosteller and Angel Su, and they talk about that that we are um, we're. Far from reaching a consensus, but they're talking about how the non-state actors are helpful. And you're mentioning all those non-state actors and all of those corporations that are, you amass the capital that they're having control of. It's really considerable. uh, So these are the non-state actors that all of you that are are, uh, researching and mobilizing and activating on here are, are talking about. So it's, That's right. it's huge. That's right. Well, I want to know, as you're getting packed for your Friday a departure for Paris, uh, are there any particular counterparts whom you plan to meet in Paris? Yes, I plan to uh, try to monitor the actual negotiations by talking to delegates that I know. I'm also planning to meet with uh, other people at think tanks from other countries to uh, discuss plans for the coming year, what we're going to do after Paris. Uh, Of course, it depends on what happens in Paris. 
uh, and uh, I'm going to be reporting back to my institution and to uh, members of Citizens Climate Lobby. I'm giving uh, a speech in in January to the regional conference. Where? But if I could, in the moment left to, to wrap up, uh, reasons why I'm optimistic and why I'm, I'm in this. I really okay. am in this for the long term. And I really do believe that our government is going to flip on this issue. It's hard to see that looking at the current news, the top headline news. And I don't know when, how long it will take. But think about this. Ten years ago, it was illegal for gays to marry in most places. And 30 years ago, it was legal to smoke in public places. Oh, but the science prevailed eventually in public policy. And 100 years ago, men didn't let the women vote until the men changed their minds. And in all three of these historic cases, big change came partly because average citizens got organized and said what they wanted and political leaders listened. I think it's going to happen on climate change, too. I just hope it doesn't take too much longer. So you mentioned a talk you're going to be giving. Is that going to be in the Southland, John O'Dell? Yes, it is. Where is that going to be and when? Uh, It's going to be January 24th or 25th at the uh, regional meeting of Citizens Climate Lobby. And I think it's going to be in Anaheim, but I'm not sure. I I should check on that and get back to you. Well, then I'll be sure to post that. Maybe somebody wants to talk about it right just before it happens so we can give that as a public service reminder, a PSR. <laughs> so This that, will be a report on what happened in Paris and what it means. Oh, right. With you and other CCL members that are heading that way? Yes. Okay. Oh, that'll be, that'll be a terrific opportunity to hear what's going on. And maybe you'll be able to even give more privilege to if updates and things that's going on. Now, are there any... Are there uh, congressional members that are heading to Paris that you're aware of? I, that's, I don't know if you even know that. I don't know that. I haven't heard of any uh, U.S. members of Congress going. Uh, it would not be unusual if, if some of the uh, people interested in this, of course, John Kerry, former member of right, Congress, right. Secretary of State, but <clears throat> the Canadian government uh, has just changed, and they have a new liberal government that is very strong on climate change. So ready. And the Prime Minister is taking the premiers from all the provinces, uh, as well as his ministers, to to uh, Paris. That uh, was a flip. They're, they're just getting together a new climate policy. A, but a, a complete flip from what uh, Prime Minister Harper's, uh, what is it, 11-year uh, leadership. Uh, that's right. The legacy is. So Trudeau is intent on changing that all on the dime. So, well, I'm so glad you were able to come back a week later. It allowed us to cover the science and some of the international domain of uh, resource management with the the two Stanford scientists. And today, for you to talk about your waxing very positive, for good reason, uh, on the movement happening in congressional. And, and, and it has to happen, the state and local, there's all, where, and I know CCL is working on that too. So I wish you... A wonderful trip, and uh, thank you for today. And let's let's make sure somebody gets to talk about your leading into the January 24th or 25th talk in Anaheim that you'll be presenting on what happened in Paris. So thank you so much again for, for well, doing this you, with buddy, us today. for the work you do, too. All righty. We'll be right back after a short break with Professor 
Jane Lewis to talk about the time-honored ritual of writing that holiday note. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Today we are having as a special guest, my wordsmith of choice is literature professor at UC Irvine, Ms. Jane Lewis. Jane is covering restoration and, let's see, is it gothic literature and some other supernatural? Tell me what it is, Jane. Oh, I think the the easiest way to describe it would be restoration of 18th century British literature. But there's something much juicier on your website. Oh, I'd like to know what that is. Okay, well, <laughs> I it's it goes into some of the gothic and other kinds of genres. So and and radio always talks about genres and you're on our show here talking about genres. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today our wish is to talk about the genre of the holiday letter, or it could be just the holiday message that one writes on a card. But when I thought of this possibility, I thought of Professor Jane Lewis, as I said, my wordsmithing expert of of preference. And so today, Jane is going to help all of us consider how we can be better consumers, better formulators of this genre, the holiday letter. So Jane, do you have an idea about what makes um, what start what what gets people into writing these letters the stock ones that we all get a copy of uh, stock ones you mean uh, uh, they oh you mean just the 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 family newsletter the family newsletter the newsletter, the, uh, yes, the yes. year in review kind of thing uh, yes a wonderful subgenre <laughs> yes <laughs> the genre of the letter in general yes I have to say the 18th century by the way was the great age of letter writing so it was. We've lost a lot of that art, tragically, which we have a chance to kind of recover in the holiday letter, and that's a that's a good thing. Um, so let's see the stock holiday letter. The letter. Um, what? Yeah. What it, do you think? What need is this filling for people? Is it sending or receiving? What is it about? Well, I think I think it's well. It's definitely about both. Um, I think for the sender, it's about. Obviously, the obvious things are sort of reaching out to people that you may not have been in touch with over the last year or so. Um, but it's also about, I think, you know, getting a chance to stand back from your life and interpret, you know, what, what's been happening to you over the last year. I think there's a real gain for the letter writer in it, not to make it all about the letter writer, but I think that's an important aspect of it. Um, and for the receiver, who is the more important, I think, person in all of this, ultimately, you know, it's about gaining, uh, regaining a very important sense of connection, not just with a person, but I think with the texture of that person's life. And that's a really um, vital part of, of this, <laughs> this subgenre that we're talking about, um, mm-hmm. that it's really about sharing not just the what's of your life, but the, you know, the hows and the, uh, and the what it meant <laughs> of your life as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm amazed um, by the range of letters that I get every year. And uh, for many, 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 many years, I refuse to write these. Yeah. But I, this, ladies and gentlemen, you know that Ask a Leader is not about the interviewer here. It, but I, I, it's just my motivation for uh, bringing this particular program together. And I noticed that um, there are some that are just absolutely 
uh, well, I'm glad I get those letters because some things I'd never know. And, uh, and I thought, well, it's a good thing I'm getting this, uh, this copy that everybody else is getting. But when I'm writing them, Jane, I'm thinking, what, or when I'm think, approaching, and I'm ha- I still haven't done it this year, but I'm thinking about whether um, what I've just written down, that the people that I'm closest to, they've heard 80% of this. Mm. So I need to get on to something that is more creative, more self-effacing, more something. So I, I guess the point of the show is for you to take what you, I understand, do very well with your uh, your proclivity towards wordsmithing and, and what you do with this ritual yourself. If you could lead our listeners through how they can approach this creative, important task of connection. Mm. Well, how do you start? Yeah. Hmm. I think you start... <laughs> I think you start actually believing in what you're doing. I think all of us. Uh, have, I think all of us have been, you know, where you are in terms of, you know, sort of thinking. You know, I, you know, as you say, everybody sort of knows what I have to say, or most people do. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people have also gone through that conversion process of, you know, um, thinking I'll never write one of these, and then uh, at some point, you know, being overtaken by just, you know, uh, increasing circle of friends or less time, you know, to write an individual letter to every one and have made the leap. And, um, I'm someone who always, has always in the past actually looked forward to, um, you know, people's holiday letters. Mm-hmm. And I even like to read ones by people I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, okay, listeners, um, that's the point. Which is an interesting thing. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, but, you know, I just there's something about sort of getting a glimpse of the texture of people's lives. So I would say one of the most important things is actually... Uh, not to be so concerned about, um, you know, uh, what you uh, seem to be concerned about, which is the, you know, everyone or most of your readers actually being familiar with what it is that you would like to say. Okay. Um, Because I think you'd sort of be surprised. And and in any case, they haven't encountered your life in this form before, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. I mean, you know, we live in the age of Facebook where people update each other, (laughs) you know, all the time. Right. and uh, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's something to consider as well, even if you're not actually, you know, having long conversations with people who are eventually going to be getting your, your holiday letter. Um, but I think that the letter, you know, when it's undertaken in the right spirit, right, can actually, you know, be a, a form of communication that's very different from those other kinds of communication, very different from just sort of telling someone, you know, what's been going on in the last month or so of your life. Um, so... I, I think one way to think about the the, the letter, and um, this gets into the sort of creative question, yes. is really to think of it as a story, um, you know, that you're telling, right, which has, you know, an open end, <laughs> but a beginning and a middle, and, you know, which really extends over, you know, the last 12 months, which is actually quite a long time. Um, and that, you know, one of the, the, the virtues of, or the, the beauties of the holiday letter, one of its distinctive charms um, is that it, it really is a sort of continuous narrative that um, gives you a chance not just to say what's happened, but to make sense of things. And so I think to approach the letter in a kind of narrative spirit <laughs> um, is is a wonderful um, sort of way to think about it, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if you're any kind of storyteller at all. And I know, you know, some people, you know, very explicitly fall into the the kind of narrative mode, you know, in this, right. you, know, um, you know, once upon a time, you know, um, I was this and now I'm that, you know, here at the other end of the year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, there are a lot of uh, ways that you can kind of play around with that. Um, 
So, yes. So I, I think, you know, I mean, that, that would be the first thing I would say, you know, to sort of think of it as a, as a story um, that you're telling, um, one that you're telling, you know, very much with, you know, a number, a range of readers in mind, not mm-hmm. just one. Um, but you do have a kind of captive audience. I mean, one of the things, <laughs> it's true. I mean, one of the, it's true. It's different from all the, if you think about it, you know, this kind of letter is different from, you know, emails we send. Yes. Right? In, the sen- in the very important sense that you're not expecting anyone to write back. Right, um, and interesting, uh, yeah, and and which makes it you know I, I guess part of what I'm saying is just the you know the the mode of it is 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 uh, in some ways very different from the other ways that we sort of impart or exchange information about ourselves, and um, and that gives us a lot of a lot of you know creative creative license, even if it's just at the level of you know thinking in terms of you know a story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But in light of that, I mean, I, if I think back, you know, I mean, there's some wonderful, I mean, the, the, the harsher word for it would be gimmicks, but, you know, sort of techniques that people use, right, to sort of frame their holiday letters mm-hmm, that, um, mm-hmm. can be just so kind of engaging and interesting. We had one once from someone who structured his letter by just looking at his refrigerator and, um, you know, at the things that were on the front of his refrigerator, you know, the photographs and, you know, the uh, announcements and, you know, just sort of describing what was there. And mm-hmm. it became a wonderful, you know, sort of capsule of everything that was going on in his life at the moment. And then he could sort of connect that back to things that had been going on over the last year. And um, so Not what's inside the refrigerator, Jane? On the outside. Okay, you know well, there we, could you know, be... We, have, we fasten things to our refrigerator. Sure. Actually, we have a stainless steel refrigerator, so we can't do that anymore. But, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, if you have the nice enamel surface. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you just kind of locate the some place in your life, you know, like the top of your desk mm-hmm, or something, mm-hmm. which, you know, has bits and pieces of your life on it, right? And you just sort of start describing that, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You end up giving, very often, a very complete picture of you know, what's going on in your world. We're uh, talking, listeners, to Professor of Literature at UC Irvine, Professor Jane Lewis, talking about the genre of, or the subgenre of, the holiday letter. Yes, Jane, you were saying about there was this these techniques, right. um, l- l- the canvas of the refrigerator door, the canvas of the desktop, Right. Some other techniques well, that come like to mind. That. Um, well, um, some people do things like, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the ten, the you know, the ten best books I read last year. You know, yes. and then sort of build a story around each book. You know, or. You know, I mean, I could think of, you know, something like, you know, you know, the five sweetest things I tasted last year, and here's where I tasted them, and you end up sort of summarizing different places. That Very you nice. Been. Um, but, you know, some sort of list mode, I think, if you, you know, sort of really flesh it out and, you know, turn it ultimately into a story can mm-hmm. be a wonderful way of kind of structuring um I don't want to say information, that's too cold a term, but, you know, structuring um, the experiences that that you've had. Um, and again, I, I think it is really important to remember that, you know, it's not just the content of what you're saying, right, but it's also, you know, the way you're saying it. It's and, the and, way. It's 90% the way, I yeah, think. Yeah, and, and, and how you're interpreting what you're saying. I think those things are, you know, um, really, really vital parts of, of, of this kind of communication. Now, are you a believer in, do all of the members of the household that are getting covered in this letter, do they have to have some, provide some kind of implicit permission for the content? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, this is the, the family, the family um, letter. 
And I think anyone who can write, <laughs> you know, so I guess anyone over the age of six or seven should get a paragraph of his or her own. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Um, and um, it, so not only, I, I, mean, I really pretty strongly feel not only should, you know, their points of view be represented, but they should be allowed to represent them for themselves. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And without too much editing of their children, you know, mm-hmm. or even on occasion a spouse, right? Yes. On I- the part of the person who's ultimately in charge of the letter, because I think a lot of the charm of the letter, I mean, I guess this gets back to the earlier point, is really the voice that it's written in. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a, a reader of the letter, and I think, you know, if I think of myself as a reader, really wants to hear that voice, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so if what you want to do is sort of, you know, <clears throat> um, I mean, as a, a, the example of a parent, you know, has a child who is writing a paragraph, and, you know, the child won the, you know, city science fair or something, and the parent really wants this to be mentioned, and the child instead says, you know, and I, you know, I had a really great banana split last week. <laughs> you know, that's like the central, you know, event in the top mm-hmm. paragraph. That's important to leave in place, you yes. know, um, yes. because... You know, that's what, I mean, since it is a, you know, it is a letter that goes to a lot of people and potentially has the danger of seeming a little bit, you know, sort of formulaic, um, the thing that's going to rescue it from that is the sort of liveliness and individuality of the voices that are speaking in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I'm very much an advocate of the, you know, um, full-fledged family letter mm-hmm. and the, the multi-authored family letter with one person sort of appointed to frame things and, you know, uh, have have some editorial control, but not too much, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that fulfills one of the major functions of the letter, which is really to let people into your life. And, um, and Ah, I like it. that. Yeah. Ah, very, very, very classic. And when you were talking about the structure of the holiday letter has a beginning, a middle, and it's an open end, and I'm thinking of some of the best ones I've received, they have a continuation. And I will, um, listeners, I, of course, you can tell I can't resist, and we're, we're also going to hope that Jane um, Lewis will give us uh, some examples. Maybe she will be thinking and while I set this up here whether she'll be interested in previewing the year 2010 letter that leaves the Thomas Lewis household. Uh, but it has yet to be written. Th- th- all right, <laughs> well, maybe we could get you started on that. But uh, this open-ended sort of aspect where one friend um, who, uh, no, no accident, is a, uh, she's retired now, but taught uh, language arts in a high school in Tallahassee, Florida. And she would keep us posted on a household, a, a neighbor next to her who used to slaughter goats in his backyard. And it was something they didn't know how, nobody knew what to make of that. And so she would talk about how she tried to get that neighbor out of the hood. And, you know, what was what was the latest kind of uh, sacrifice done in the backyard and that kind of thing. And she just knew how to roll it off the tongue. And I, I don't think I have that sample here, but she always managed to... Uh, to help, so we could find out, well, what's going on with that neighbor this year or what other calamities or, or hilarities that, uh, you know, would build from year to year. So that's yeah. that is something that can happen with that structure. But I love the thought that it's it is there isn't anything that has that open end to it, like what we would guarantee. And I, I'm also um, so are, what are you thinking of covering this year? And are, what are do you, are you and do you have some samples that you can call up of, of what you thought worked well when you were preparing them in previous years? Um, let me think. Uh, I guess 
I would go back, just to take the, the last part first, um, I guess I would go back to, I, I'm just trying to think back, last year. One thing is that our family um, always takes a fairly ambitious vacation. Ah. Um, and so that usually ends up to be, you know, the, our first substantial paragraph is... You lead uh, with that. Yeah, or um, we usually have it, well, I guess oh. our first substantial paragraph. We have a sort of intro paragraph, and then we usually kind of go into that. But we also have a photograph, typically. We have, yes. We have one child, and so the photograph is always of him. Um, and then, Only? Have you ever had the whole family no, sometimes? No, we haven't. Maybe and, sometime, just yeah, every now and then. Yeah, I, we got a dog this year for the first time. And, you know, we're thinking, you know, it might be worth, you know, putting all four of us in there. But I think. Um, but, you know, typically it's just our son. And um, last year, I, he, he plays piano, um, and we had an image of him playing the piano. Very nice. Um, quite recently to the time we were doing the newsletter. That I think that's important, by the way, if you're going to have a photo is, you know, it, it sort of try to tilt it toward the, the latter half of the year, so it's a little bit more recent. Oh, I say within the um, last two months. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or and, month. And mm-hmm. spo- spontaneity is, I, I think, a spontaneous shot. Absolutely. It's really, um, it, it is, is often preferable to a kind of posed shot. Essential. Um, yeah. Um, so, anyway, so we had, that's what we had last year. And then um, the other thing, since I'm a literary person, I sometimes like to use literary, you know, quotations. Oh, um, and okay. the one that came to us last year, it was funny because my husband and I were both, you know, sort of thinking independently about how we would do this. And we actually came up with the same line, um, which um, is from uh, John Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, which is, heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Oh. Um, beautiful line. And so we sort of opened with the idea of the heard melody and wanting to sort of share the music of our lives with other people and, um, you know, sort of playing off the image of our son. And then we came back around to that image at the end. Um, mm. I guess it's a kind of musical structure in lots of ways. But, um you know, which is a little bit, I, I mean, I think it's important for, you know, there to be a certain lightness of touch to the newsletter, and that's not really, or the holiday letter, and that's not really an example of that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it is, it, it is you know, a way of sort of interweaving, you know, the visual image and, um, you know, something a little bit more sort of shapely um, mm-hmm. and poetic. Um, but Very also fun. conveying some, you know, important detail about our life, our lives, which in that case last year was certainly... You know, music was very important, um, particularly last year. And so, you know, uh, we were able to kind of build that that in kind of thematically. Um, well, good. Uh, we want to just remind our listeners, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming live on KUCI.org, talking with Professor Jane Lewis, talking about the subgenre of the holiday letter. So I like that uh, that the quotation setting it up. Um, what other devices are the Lewis Thomases considering? Uh, let's see. For this year. Well, you know, we really haven't talked about it very much. I'm Uh-oh. kind of embarrassed <laughs> to say it. This is supposed to kick, kick me in the rear well, end. Well, here's the spontaneity <laughs> then. Yeah. You know, I like know. urgency is going to breed. What will, we, what, what will we do? Let's see. We were in London last summer. My uh-huh. son was, you know, I really... Um, completely besotted with the London Underground. Um, so we, it's conceivable we might do some sort of, you know, public transportation, sort mm-hmm. of fruits of our lives kinds of theme. Or underground. Uh, yeah, oh, I like that. A subterranean yes. sort of uh, 
subconscious, yeah. sub, sub, sub. Our buried lives, which we don't want to inquire into too closely. But, okay. <laughs> which I think that's an, another important thing, aspect of the of the holiday letter is, you know, you want to, you know, give some details, but, you know, you don't want to go too deep for the general reader. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, or minding the gap, the great sort of slogan of the of the London Underground. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm just sort of thinking of that off the top of my head. Um yeah, we were also in Paris for a while, and apparently there's a picture of my son with a napkin on his head in a cafe. <laughs> so, mm, you know, mm, might mm. do something with sort of, you know, being, you know, a little bit transgressive and in a very cultured environment. But, um, mm. yeah, I, I'm not sure. But we do, do tend to think sort of our letters tend to be a little bit more sort of thematic in that way rather than... Um, you know, some of the, the suggestions I was, you know, the, the list-like, you know, playful list, you know, mode that I was talking about mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, one year we had a picture of my son with, at a drinking fountain. This was actually in the south of France. It was a great image. You know, he looked it very sort of, it, the water just looks very delicious. And he yes. Like he's, you know, really enjoying it. It's a, And it's a very hot, bright day, and it's a great image. And, you know, the theme of our email, I mean, our uh, letter and the sign-off was all good things. And, you know, it was just about things that are just sort of sweet and good. And, you know, oh, fine. Um, you know, so... You know, that's another another possibility. Now, what role does something sad or something or bad news? What mm. is there a, some dispensation or some is there a way in which one uh, posts readers on something mm. not so uh, not so upbeat? Does it stay out, or we is there? It, it all depends on how you do it. I think it all depends on how you do it and whether you feel up to do it. I could well imagine people just skipping a year or two, you know. Okay, that's, um, that's you know, important. I mean, that perfectly permissible, you know, in the protocol of, of holiday letters, you mm-hmm. know, to, uh, you know, just sit it out if you really feel like you can't, you know, kind of put stuff together. And I, I've often gotten letters in, you know, February or March by people who just needed a little extra time. And, uh, that's know, true. That's true. Yeah, which makes its own point, I think. Um, but I can remember, Jane, when we knew it, it was a, it was a family friend. Yeah. And uh, we knew, I mean, she was, this was when uh, dialysis machines were brand new and mm-hmm. sort of her, her terminal uh, aspect was, it was real, it was pretty inevitable there. And I remember they they just went into a black and white photograph with the with surviving family members, and oh. it was sort of a there was a, sol, a a solemnity and a nobility in the black and white print and uh, how mm-hmm. you know how it was prepared. This is so long ago, but um, oh, I'm just though. so yeah. everybody knew you could tell right when you opened up that okay this was this was going to be yeah. just the three of them, not the four anymore. Right. But anyway, and it said everything. It yeah. said everything, and it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's real. It's and you know, I had a really a very dear cousin who was an artist and who did you know just wonderful letters over here. Who died two years ago, right before Christmas, and the family you know actually did send out the letters you know and and just described her death very gracefully, but described it and I think this is an important point. Yes, please. Part, part of the ongoing life of the family and you know emphasizing how important the letter was to her and that's why they were going on with it and also a tribute but weaving her death i mean i mean this is so important i mean no matter what it is the death is an extreme example but yes you know whatever whatever it is right um to understand and i think this is the use of the letter for the letter writer that understand that you know that is 
part of an ongoing life, right? An yes. ongoing lives. And there's a way of assimilating that to the letter that can actually make the letter more life-affirming than it would be if it were just sort of bland good news, right? Or, you exactly. Know, evasion of the topic. And I've had many, many letters like that. There was I had one just last year from a friend whose husband was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor, and he, in fact, has since... Um, died, and it, it was sort of amazing, you know, that the, the letter sort of started out describing this exuberant time they'd had in, oh. in Barcelona, you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, this sort of disquieting diagnosis comes, you know, and then the last part of it was just a description of their daily lives and the kinds of, you know, meaning that they were finding in, um, you know, just the experience of, of an ordinary day. And, um, it just ended up making life feel really precious without downplaying you know, their pain or falsifying their experience, but, you know, um, but fulfilling the, you know, I mean, the, you know, the point of this time of year, no matter what kind of tradition you're coming out of, you know, just the idea of the new year, right? Right. The idea of, right. And Jane, it's, it fits in the form you're talking about. We, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty mm-hmm. shortly, but you're talking about the form of the in, the beginning, the middle, and then open end is yeah. where, where they go uh, surviving this loved one and the family in their exactly. in their workplace yeah. in their social circle you know where, whichever whatever the reflection is about that yeah. well i think you have provided all of us invaluable insight inspiration and direction on how we can all do ourselves a a, a world of good in approaching this uh, ritual uh, giving us more meaning uh, to take out there and uh, challenging us to uh, reach in for something we hadn't maybe fully uh, fully uh, realized, fully tapped into, and this is our chance. Thanks to you, Jane. Oh, well, thank you. This has been really fun to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure, and maybe uh, we c- I don't know that we're going to get into a, an annual thing, but we can... We, or maybe we, uh, another time of year a literary tradition can come up and we can have Professor Jane Lewis weigh in with how we can make more of that. Well, I, I really do want to thank you for being on the show and we'll uh, stay tuned with uh, the, the uh, up-and-coming program in the next weeks to come. Jane, thank you very, very much for, for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having Thanks a lot. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Happy holidays. Thank Well, that was my wrap. Next week on these airwaves, I'm going to talk with Keith Danner. He's a UCI composition lecturer and a member of the, an active one, a member of the American Federation of Teachers. He'll talk about Friedrichs versus the California Teachers Association and some other union dues. Get it? D-O-S and D-U-E-S. That's a Supreme Court ruling that's going to be heard. Decision, the voir dire is going to be on uh, in January and the ruling probably near the end of the session in the summer. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you.